G'day everyone, my name is Stephen and welcome to the Bamboo History Podcast. For those of you who don't know, this is a podcast that will focus on Chinese and East Asian history. Today will be an exciting episode because we've got a guest coming onto the show today to talk about the history of Vietnamese fur noodles. I recorded our discussion a month ago, and the following recording might sound a bit different to the recording you are listening to right now. I hope all of you don't mind. Alright, without further ado, let's get straight into it. Today we've got a fun episode because we've got a guest speaker who's come onto our show. Her name is Andrea Nguyen. She's from America, and she's a famous chef slash food writer slash cookbook author slash everything uh, relating to food. <laughs> her specialty is Vietnamese cuisine, and I came across her because I literally was interested in the history of fur, and I read her article, The History of Fur, which is an excerpt from her book, The Fur Cookbook, uh, which was published a few years ago, I think. And so she's gladly agreed to come onto our show and we've already had a bit of a chat and she's a lovely person and I hope she thinks that I'm lovely as well. But yeah, welcome to the show, Andrea. How's everything been? Oh, very well, Stephen. Thank you so much for inviting me on to talk about one of my favorite food groups. <laughs> yeah, so um, I, I was saying, yeah, fur is something that I really like to eat and yeah, I was literally just interested in how it came about and how this dish evolved. And from what I read from your article, you know, you've loved fur since you were really young. Correct. So I was born in Vietnam, in Saigon. And when I was five years old, my parents, like, well, things were really bad in the 1960s and 70s in Vietnam. Yeah, <laughs> if yeah, anyone that knows the history yeah. of, of yeah. Vietnam, it was really crappy. <laughs> so, yeah. um, but, uh, and things were coming down pretty heavily, um, really bad, yeah. you know, a lot of negativity. But one of the um, wonderful things about living during that era and being young is, you know, the food. And so yeah. my parents took me out um, to eat quite a bit. I was the youngest of five children. And yeah. um, so while my older siblings were busy with school and stuff, they would take me out. And so they they took me out to a, a faux shop. And at five years old, I used chopsticks and a spoon to work my way all the way down to the bottom of the bowl. That's the right and thing to do. Yeah. Can't waste yeah, food. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Exactly. I was not stupid. That could have been my last goal. <laughs> Would have been hard with yeah. like, you know, all your siblings to you know fight over like everything. Exactly. Exactly. But um, they were very, very proud that uh, their youngest child could use chopsticks and spoon on her own, no assistance needed. Because <laughs> I really, really loved um, that noodle soup from a very, very young age. I guess these memories from when you're a young age really stick. And it's sort of like me as well. When, when I was like 10 years old, I had my first Peking duck in Beijing and it really stuck with me in my head for a long, long time. And I just could never create that moment again. So for you, I guess having the first fur dish as a child and, you know, scraping it to the very last bowl, has that really, has that still stuck with you until now? Yes. Um, I, I loved food. Uh, when I was a child and was privileged to um, be well-fed in yeah. a country that is not, you know, like economically so developed. Yeah. And so 
when my family came to the United States in 1975, um, we fled Vietnam like a lot of Vietnamese people did. You know, many people settled in Australia, for example. And we went to California. And there were not that many Vietnamese people here. We couldn't go out to our regular pho spots mm. anymore. So my mother took to making pho at home. And um, so, you know, switching to 1975, you know, we're in Saigon in April of 1975. And then by May, we're like resettling in California. And she did her best to get ingredients um, from Chinatown so that yep. she could recreate her favorites. And so eventually she started making pho at home. So I grew up on homemade pho. Is pho, so from my knowledge, and I've watched some YouTube videos about it, but pho seems like a really hard dish to make and it takes ages. Like you have to leave. Is that right? Like you it, must know... be, it must have been really hard to, to make like all the time because it takes. But aren't mothers just like magicians? That, that is true. <laughs> How she yeah, can just you know, recreate dishes like that, yeah. Yeah, they they are musicians and they love you so mm. much that they make your favorite foods and you don't even know that it's happening. Um, my mother had a full-time job as a dressmaker, a tailor, yeah. and she worked out of the house, but she always made dinner. And um, on the weekends, she always brewed a pot of pho. Not mm. always, but like most weekends, she would brew a pot of pho on Saturday yeah. so that on Sunday morning, we would have pho right after church. And so, you know, my my history of uh, go, you know, started when I was young in Vietnam, continued yep. um, in the United States. But and I, like you, Stephen, I thought like I knew everything about pho. I was like, <laughs> there's a beef version and there's a chicken version. And I had written my first cookbook in 2006 called Into the Vietnamese Kitchen. I had two recipes, and I thought that's it, folks. Nothing and, and, then, and then someone went back and it was like, Andrea, there, there's a bit more to it than that. <laughs> and I was Guessing. like, really? Yeah. Really? And I was teaching people how to make pho too. And so yeah. for a lot of Vietnamese people, they think they'll, a lot of older people say, oh, it takes 12 hours to brew a pot of mm. bones to make the broth and all that. Yeah, yeah, my that's mom, what I... Yeah, my mom is like, no, three to four hours of simmering and that's it. I thought you were going to say 12 minutes. <laughs> no, no. Well, you could, you could do that with an instant pot. Yeah, the instant so, <laughs> the, the sachets, yeah. <laughs> right, right. So um, the pressure cookers are great. And so, but the thing is that if you're going to make a huge pot to serve, yeah. you know, 25 people, if it's a huge, huge quantities, then yes, um, it's going to take longer to bring the pot to a simmer and then to cook it because you just, you have more material. But if yeah. you're just cooking for seven, a household of seven, like my mother did, it was not a big deal for her to make fowl all the time for us. Um, and so that's one of the things, my mother is not a normal person in the sense that she's like, ah, we can do that. And I'm going <laughs> to tell you how. So, so, you know, fowl is... When I when I went to go write the pho cookbook, I admit to you, and I admit this publicly since the book came out in yep. 2017, that I really didn't think I needed to write a book. But I thought about it, and then I researched the history of pho, and I realized that we can take pho and we can use it to as a lens to understand yeah. Vietnamese history in the 20th century. And this is probably, Stephen, what hooked you, it aside did. from the soup. It did. And funny you mentioned, I actually realized I'd watched a video 
um, posted by Vice many years ago, and it was you. And I just, I was like, oh my God, that's Andrew. That's who I'm literally going to speak to like in a few days. And you were mentioning about your recipe of bun mi and how it was associated with um, colonialism because the French brought over the baguette. So when I read your article, I was like, you know, wow, I didn't know. Well, pho is essentially a Vietnamese food item, but it actually comes from, it's been influenced from many different countries, such as, you know, France and even China. Yes, yes. And so the Vietnamese, they own pho, just like they own banh mi. Yeah, and there was so much, colonialism has its, um, has its place in history because yeah. it allows cultures to rub shoulders. And so with pho, you see that the French were in Vietnam slaughtering cows because they needed their steak. And there were a lot of these odds and ends and tough cuts and that yeah. they left those uh, parts to the Vietnamese butchers who then had a great sale and were promoting. Yeah. Um, and most people at that time ate a lot of water buffalo. And there was uh, a sorry, was soup. that Vietnamese people who ate the water buffalo, or was yes, it French yes, that, people? The, the the oh, are you kidding? The French would not touch water buffalo. My <laughs> God, true. that's too native. Um, <laughs> maybe some <laughs> did, but most did not. They wanted their very tender. Then why did they go there then in the first place? Jeez, they sought rubber <laughs> and many other natural resources. That um, they could take. Yeah, as, yeah, yeah. And so the. The Vietnamese um, had these soup vendors who were a lot of times Chinese. Yeah. And, you know, when you take a look at, at where pho originated in and around Hanoi, that's like northern Vietnam. So so China's right there. And there's a lot of interaction between the Chinese and the Vietnamese. And there are these merchant ships that are flowing from Yunnan province down on the Red River to the Gulf of Tonkin. And wherever the the river stop i mean the boat stop on the river then there has to be food and who yep. was selling food but like some of these noodle vendors and so first their noodles were this uh this noodle dish called sao chow which is like broth made from water buffalo with some cooked water buffalo slices yep. and round rice noodles and then once Beef went on sale. Hey, they weren't stupid vendors. They were like, we're going to like. We're going to utilize every part of the cow. Yeah. Yeah. And they switched and they made instead of a water buffalo based soup, they made a beef based soup called sao ba. Uh, and okay. um, and initially there were a lot of like working class people who were interested in um, the noodle soup. And then eventually by around 19, by the 20s, 1920s, then you have pho shops in Hanoi. And people then were interested in pho, you know, aside from, from the folks who were, say, like the coolies working on the ships mm. or serving the merchants. Um, these were just like town folk folks too. So so the, the dish becomes this very popular everyday food such that by like the 1930s, there was mm -hmm. a dictionary entry for pho. Oh, wow. But yeah. But and so, you know, like from around, so around the turn of the, so, you know, early 20th century. So we're talking like 1905 it, kind of thing. And and that was the thing. It's, it's actually a very recent invention. Like if I was to teleport myself 100 or 200 years ago to 1800s Vietnam, and I'm walking around, for example, Hanoi and going, where's the first store? I want to have some fur. There wouldn't be any around because correct such Correct. a recent invention 
It is, it is. And yet, um, we as moderns think, oh my God, it seems so ancient. Yeah. <laughs> when, you, when, uh, when you're eating, you're like, I can, I can taste the hundreds and thousands of years of Vietnamese history, but no, literally, it's, yeah, 1920s, 1930s. Yeah, it's very much of um, that period. You know, the French were officially had colonial power over Vietnam from the early 1880s to yeah. 1954. Yeah. And so um, there have been a lot of people who said, oh, pho is related to the French poteau pho, because yeah. pho and pho, meaning fire in French, sounds so similar. Um, and Vietnamese people have said this too. And I was, you know, and part of my thing I'm going to tell you is that, like, you're wrong. <laughs> but, I mean, it's kind of like you don't need to always default. Yeah. to the colonial powers as saying, oh, that's so French influence. The Vietnamese people had a lot of agency and they yeah. wanted self-determination. And so they were always, you know, taking ideas from other countries and making it their own. Yeah. And, you know, certainly they've like done that with, with Chinese food to a certain extent, but a lot of dishes like in the Vietnamese canon, we go, oh, that's a Chinese dish. Or that's a Chinese Vietnamese dish. This is a Vietnamese dish. But yeah. with the French, you know, there's some things are pure French, but like with pho, totally circumstantial. You've got the beef sitting around, right? You've got these vendors who are like, I need a, here's a cheaper ingredient that's on sale. Yeah. You've got workers who want something warm and uh, hearty to mm. eat that's affordable. And then there's pho. And some of the initial fall vendors were, were Cantonese. So the initial term for, for fall way, way back was, um, I, you know, my Cantonese isn't very good, but it was something like Ngu Nhuk Phan. Oh, fun. Fun is fun. Cantonese and Mandarin for rice noodles. Fun. Right, fun. Yeah. Right. And so it was like Nyung Nyuk Fun. And so yeah. like people were going around the vendors with their shoulder poles, you know, like saying yeah. Nyung Nyuk Fun. And yeah. people would buy it. But eventually fun, you know, those are like three words and, and it's hard to hear. So they were like you yeah. know, trying to holler and all that. Eventually fun became fun. And that's sort of like, you know, by pure words, you go, well, that's probably more closer to the Chinese having an impact on the word more than the French influencing, you know, but, but I, I think that I just wanted to spell that notion that, oh, the French influence, it's like so romantic. And this is like a but, working class food. Yeah. And the thing is like, I think from, even for me personally, when I look at the dish, it's hard to see any French influences. Like the French don't eat noodles. Right. It's just like, you know, and the, and that one thing that may have influenced the the Vietnamese uh, way of making pho is how we char the um, shallot and the ginger for the traditional broth, and yeah. that may have like taken you know come from the French idea of uh, yeah. browning or roasting the aromatics before they make a brown um, yeah. broth. And since Vietnamese cooks don't have ovens, they've got braziers. You know, they just then um, grill those elements. But the spices, geez, that's a like, you yeah. know, Chinese and Vietnamese spices. I mean, fish sauce, come on. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Yes. Um, when I was reading through your article, a really interesting thing that I found was the fur that we have outside of Vietnam 
is completely different from what they'd have in Vietnam. And then you talked about the split between North and South. I thought that was really cool. And I feel as if, correct me if I'm wrong, the fur that we we would normally eat, for example, in America, Australia, and other countries is more, I guess, similar to the one in the South? Correct. And you you want to think about, so, so pho originated in and around Hanoi in North yeah. Vietnam. So then um, there are two markers in Vietnamese history, um, 1954 and 1975. So I already yeah. like touched on 1954, 1975 as when the fall of Saigon happens yeah. and the country is reunified. And many people like myself and Vietnamese people that, that many folks know abroad fled. In 54, the country was split according to the Geneva Accords into North and South Vietnam. And at that point then, even though pho was around in Southern Vietnam, it was really like the Northerners who came down in mass. They were like, all right, we're bringing like legit pho to you Saigonese, you Southerners. And so it's, it's people like my parents, <laughs> people like my mother, who's like, they really didn't know pho until Northerners came down. But the thing is that Northern pho, Northern Vietnamese pho is very pure. It's very light. It's yeah. very delicate. You do not get the hoisin sauce, the chili sauce all of those um, herbs, you don't get bean sprouts, you just get a very delicate broth that yep. is um, savory sweet. The portions are small. And not even the mint as well? You would get a little mint. Yep. Little. And even like the mint in Northern Vietnam, there's like this particular kind of mint, the leaves are very small, but very powerful. Oh, so, okay. And so, and you get down to Southern Vietnam, where the economy is looser and culturally people are much more progressive and the pho bowls get bigger. And then yeah. people like dress them up with all these different cuts. And and the Northerners suffer quite a bit because they were under communist rule. And yeah. they had a, a famine, there was rationing. It was just awful. And yep. I interviewed my cousin um, who lived through that period in Hanoi yep. for the pho cookbook. And he yep. was just like, it was atrocious. And so pho held on in, in Northern Vietnam, but, as, but in 75, when so many people from the South fled, even if they had been living, you know, they had, if even if they had been from Northern Vietnam, their taste buds had very been influenced by Southern Vietnam. So you have a lot of like Southern Vietnamese resettling in other parts of the country or of the world. So um, then the bowls are bigger. It's sweeter than savory. Do you know why they would have altered it in such a way? Is it maybe because Saigon's just a more cosmopolitan city? So they like well, to sort of dress it up, make it a lot more grander. I, I don't know. Yes. So you have the traditions of the Northerners that tend to be more conservative. And then the Southerners are like, hey, let's just have a good time. And it seems to happen in every <laughs> single country. And and so in Southern Vietnam, economically, culturally, they are much wealthier and, and looser. Yeah. And people like to live large. They're more colorful, more expressive. So the pho, yeah. and they also like sweet that because there's like more sugar that you can produce from like sugar cane and other kinds of like tropical yeah. fruits. Yeah. So they enjoy, you know, a sweeter broth. They enjoy bigger bowls. And so the pho changed. And so what we have abroad is oftentimes informed by the Southern Vietnamese experience. Yeah. Although now in 2022, things are changing. In, in what sort of way? 
people are traveling back to Vietnam and they are tasting northern Vietnamese pho. You also have migration of people from Vietnam who, you know, are coming from all different parts of the country. And so, uh, and people are also, the northerners who are owning some pho shops are like, you know, I'm going to reach back and like express myself in my my ancestry and make northern pho and, and not put so much darn sugar. Um, and it, and so if you go to a pho shop that identifies it as a northern Vietnamese pho, pho bac, B-A-C, then you're getting like, you should, should get a savory sweet broth instead of a sweet savory broth. Oh, okay. I guess like even for probably for Northerners, they might feel a bit of a sense of injustice because it's like we invented it, but everyone just associates it all around the world with Southern Vietnamese fur. Like how dare they? Like we created the original fur. That's not even the original you're eating. Right, right. Well, but then what is the original? I mean, the original was like cooked slices of beef with um, rice noodles and a broth. And then soon people in Hanoi, you know, were adding like raw slices of meat as like an add-on, a luxurious add-on. And then they were inventing like chicken pho or stir fried pho. And pho means the noodles as well as the soup dish, the noodle soup dish. So, So there was already like this kind of looseness to what fall is so i think the the northerners had to at some point let that go <laughs> yeah sooner or later yeah i agree it probably won't be the same as it was a hundred years ago but you know what the, these kinds of regional foe fights i think are important to have because it allows people to gain a sense of who they are through food and um, say, you know, you talk to Italians from different regions or even different towns and they mm. may make foods differently. And I think that, you know, for us to have these conversations, especially about Asian food, because there's like yeah. so much, much variety between cuisines and regions oh within the cuisines. Tell me about it. And I guess that's the point. It's almost like with food, you can just do whatever you want. Yes, um, you can do it, but there is, I think that there is always a line where you cross where it becomes a mishmash and it's no longer the food that it is. So um, my, when I'm writing or teaching a class or talking about what is Vietnamese food or what is a particular dish, I always go back and I do a lot of historical research and cite people and give credit to different cuisines because I think it's important for people to know where food comes from. And, and that food is a great way to bridge cultures. But I think sometimes when people are in their kitchens and they do too many strange <laughs> food things, then it just becomes, um, honestly, it tastes bad. So I'll give you a fun example. I was told a number of years ago about something in Los Angeles called a burrito. So that is a what? A burrito. <laughs> that is a pho burrito. Burrito. What? Burrito. And I was what? like... All right. And people are like, Andrea on social media said, do you need to find out what a Farito is? And I said, fine. And I live in California, Northern California in the Bay Area near San Francisco. So that I go down to visit my family a lot. So I go to yeah. LA and I um, I go to the Farito place. And this guy's doing a great business. And I ordered one. And what it turns out, and he's so smart, is that he takes... He basically makes a burrito, but the yeah. idea is based upon the the Singaporean popia. You know, the they so the popia is built on like 
Hokkien spring roll wrappers. Yeah. And then there is like a little um, spicy bean sauce in there. Yeah. And um, some, you know, uh, lap chong. And, yeah, and yeah. it's so, it, and it's, and um, chili sauce too. So this guy, like he took that idea, but he put fall ingredients inside and he wrapped it yeah. up. And because there was that hoisin sauce and the chili sauce, and then he cooked his beef fall and then thinly sliced it. And he put it in there with the noodles and with some bean sprouts <laughs> and herbs and he rolled it together and it like totally worked. So so it did taste good. For a moment, yeah. I thought you were going to say it was an ab- abomination. No. It was. I know, see, you were speechless. But yeah. <laughs> it, was, it it worked. And so I'm always open minded, um, you know, and when I was doing research for the pho cookbook, I went to Hanoi and my friends in Hanoi said, oh, you must go have the pho cocktail. And I was like, what? <laughs> I'm here to eat traditional pho. And, and I said to them, but I also told you I want modern pho. They said, yes, you have to go and drink the pho cocktail. It costs about twenty five dollars back in twenty fifteen. What was it? Um, it was delicious. It had gin. It had um, uh, and a sweet liquor too. I and um, I believe I recreated it um, or have a recipe for a version in my cookbook. Yes, I did. And it involves like having the spices in there too, so that you really taste the pho. And it, they garnished it with a little slice of fresh chili. It it was it was wow. like pho, and it was brilliant, brilliant. You know, Alco- alcoholic pho. <laughs> yes, yes. And, you know, all these different kinds of pho things. Because the people in Vietnam are much more inventive than we give them credit for because there's the internet now. And if, if you think about it, you let's say you're eating pho. Pho's all around you, right? In, yeah. Especially the urban areas like Saigon and Hanoi. So you're like, I got to do something new. So yeah. some people will tint their pho noodles different colors with vegetable yeah. Um, juice. Other people will make um, pho rolls, which are instead of the the fun, instead of cutting the, the sheets uh, into noodles, they yeah. just keep the sheets as steamed noodle sheets. And then they wrap meat in there and uh, vegetables and serve that as a pho noodle roll. So it's like all of this is happening. So I, you know, so I was like, great, I'm going to come up with a pho dumpling. Wow. <laughs> Which is delicious because, like, I use like pho fat made in um, brewing my pho stock because you know there's fat is where the flavor oftentimes is. So that goes into the filling and a pho spice blend and a ground meat. You need to send me some photos of of this because this these are all new things that I've never could have never imagined. Right. Well, it's in my book, the pho cookbook, Um, and so I I spent a good year, year and a half researching and writing yeah. the recipes and um, another year put making the book. And I never, ever thought I could write a whole book about pho, but I did. And the thing that was so cool is that... So your cookbook won an award? Yes. So so my cookbook won a um, coveted James Beard Award, which in America is like the equivalent of like the Oscars for, for cookbook writing. Oh, wow. And I thought to myself, there was just a small book, but I used the book to really tell the story of modern Vietnam. So, yeah. you know, Vietnam has been kicked around a lot throughout history. And, you know, it has a history of like 
3,500 years, 3,500 yeah. years. And there's always been this foreign incursion uh, on Vietnam because it's a long piece of land. There are a lot of people coming in. The p- borders are porous. There's yeah. um, a lot of rich resources, natural resources. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, the Vietnamese have have figured out ways to for cultural survival. And yeah. if you take a look at food, um and follow is certainly one of them it's where like the vietnamese said hey all right the the french are here um the chinese who like were um vietnam was a chinese tribute state on and off for like a thousand years and they're like we're just gonna like take this stuff and bring it all together into this bowl of soup and um when i was in yunnan province many years ago i remember eating their noodle soup that is somewhat kind of similar to to pho is it Um, the um uh the crossing the bridge noodles yes 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 and so like it i thought oh well this is like you know there's that river the red river flowing from yunnan down and it can like bring all of these ideas yeah. And it's so and melding with the spices that were growing in th- that region. So geography and history, you know, and culture, all of these things blending together to make food what it is. So in a way, you know, there are these kind of strange borders that we place upon um, country nations, but food oftentimes crosses those borders and food doesn't care because food travels with people. And so long as people can migrate, they will make the food that they want to make, you know, with certain impressions of their past that they bring with them wherever that they land. You can almost say that um, fur literally crossed the bridge from Yunnan into northern Vietnam. (laughs) (laughs) Don't say that too loudly because the the Vietnamese, they've got like some stuff about the Chinese. And so like, you know, people are like, (laughs) they didn't, the Chinese didn't invent, no, they did not. It it happened on Vietnamese soil, but there are all of these interesting intersections. And I think the intersections are where the gems lay in how we understand ourselves and how we relate to other people. Yep. Um, one thing I found in your article really interesting was that part in the Vietnam War where I think there was a fur shop that was used as a front to um, smuggle yes. weapons uh, in and out. And the fur that was being sold was well, fur bin. Is that how you yes, pronounce it? Yes, yes, so yes. I was yes. really curious and, and... to hear more about that story. Yeah, so so this was something that came that I read. Uh, I dug into the archives of the LA Times for this little tidbit that there was a well, bin bin like um bin means peace like yeah. uh ping like like uh, uh ping yeah ping yeah yeah so it's the same character yeah and um they the Northern Vietnamese were using that foe shop to organize their transmission of weapons from North to South Vietnam, because, yeah. you know, they're like, who would suspect a foe shop. shop, Yeah, you know, and people didn't, no one knew except for the people doing the operation. And so it, you know, foe is part of espionage. <laughs> it, it's a bit ironic that they called it peace for when the purpose of the, the fur was for the exact opposite to smuggle weapons. Well, but if you're Northern Vietnamese, you're like, we were trying to establish peace. Establish and peace, re- yeah. And unite with our Southern brothers and sisters. Yep. 
And like, what do you think in terms of for the future, like for what do you think it will become? Do you think it will spread even further? In what ways will it change? I know you've already touched upon some of that with the cocktail, the dumplings and the burrito, but like, what, what's, what do you think will happen in the future? Um, I, I can't remember if I saw a pho pizza or not, but I've seen pho tacos. <laughs> wow. Uh, I've, I've tasted pho ben mi, which was very good. And I have a recipe for it um, yeah. in the pho cookbook. Just the other day, um, I was listening to a podcast from an organization called the Southern Food Waste Alliance. And they have yeah. a podcast called Gravy. Mm-hmm. And they did this whole thing on um, Texas Vietnamese food. And the lead part of their podcast was about a smoked brisket pho okay does that sounds... sound good like because like brisket's like a super fatty cut it, and it sounds and, like yeah, a very american and, um like food yes. item to mash up with a vietnamese dish yes and it's uh it's being done by vietnamese americans in texas and texas barbecue is very um it's 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 extremely meat centric uh so yeah. you're getting this very meaty um, cut that's seasoned, um, you know, with faux spices in the broth. And yeah. I've had it one time in uh, New York many years mm-hmm. ago. Um, but I can't wait to to try the the real deal down in Texas. So yeah, <laughs> faux, smoked brisket faux, you know, who knows? But I mean, I gotta tell you, like, this the other day, I had a bowl of faux soup in, um, in San Jose, yeah. and um, in a faux shop, all that they sold was pho, nothing else. Nothing else, exclusively. What? Exclusively pho. pho and like drinks. And I, and I would love to see the future of pho be something like that, where there are pho shops, just dedicated pho shops. Because, you know, these foods that we covet so much in uh, cuisines, you know, that they're, they're labor intensive. And, and some people spend their entire lives making that one dish as a vendor. And so if we can allow those cooks, those craftspeople to have these businesses that allow them to focus on one dish and we go there and we, we, you know, just like I have, I have this one book and we call it a single subject book. If we can have a single subject restaurant that focuses on, you know, one dish and all this beautiful manifestations, that would be awesome. I guess that one day will definitely can definitely happen. I mean, if people are making fur burritos, pizzas, and all that, why can't we just do something that's strictly just fur, like the traditional sort of way, noodle soup? Exactly, because you know when you were talking about traveling um, before we were recording, you were talking about traveling, uh, exploring, yeah. you know, adventuring, and you go to to other countries and. Uh, if you're eating on the street or, you know, in these small shops, they just make like, they focus on one, one dish, you know, in Israel, maybe you go to a place for a hummus, uh, a hummus place. Uh, they also have bread and all these other yeah. things that go with hummus, you know, or you go to a clay pot rice joint yeah. in Hong Kong. And it's like, that's all they make. And that's what everyone knows that that's their specialty. And it's so good. And the thing is that nowadays as moderns, we go to eat and we want everything. And yeah. one kitchen cannot do everything well. So if we that, can that, allow that, these Yeah, people, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, right? Specializing so go, is better than being an all-rounder with many things. Yeah. 
Exactly. Like I would love to go to a restaurant that just made really good pot stickers, you know, or mm. or they were or they're just jiaozi, but in the world of jiaozi, you can like have a gazillion different kinds of jiaozi, you know, you can have shui jiao, you can yeah. have shang jiao, you can have yeah. have so many different kinds. But we nowadays if people go they're like, "No, I need to have a salad and I need, you know, I have to have <laughs> breads with that and, and even have some soup too with my dumplings it's like no you just want to get the dumplings because that's a lot of work i guess many people when we eat you know we don't appreciate the people who make it we don't appreciate the history behind it as well like when i ate fur up until now i guess i never even thought about it. i just ate the fur. Like, oh this is really nice and that's it but you know after all you've just mentioned i feel like it's given me like a newfound perspective when i ate food yeah. And, and if people appreciate foods and especially Asian foods, because all over the world, there is this notion that Asian food should be cheap food and that yeah. we shouldn't pay for it. And part of the problem is that we do that to ourselves because, yeah. you know, there are people within our own communities who say, oh, my God, that restaurant was so expensive. Or, <laughs> or you know, there's all that. Sounds like something I've said maybe once, once or twice. In yeah, but I mean, you know, sometimes <laughs> it is expensive, expensive for a reason. And and I think that one of the things that the pandemic has taught a lot of people is that human labor ingredients and valuing, you know, all of that together in an eating establishment, um, you know, that is a it has high value. Those things, and we need to be willing to pay as much for that bowl of pho as we would a bowl of ramen or a dish of Italian pasta. Yeah. Okay. So, so I always think that um, I'm willing to pay more, you know, if it's good, if you make yeah. it with your heart and your soul and craftsmanship, I know it's going to be good. And if it's bad, yeah. I won't come back. Yep. Yeah. But I'm willing to bet on you. Um, if you're going to put a lot of energy and effort um, into making something yeah, really, really tasty for me. That's really well said. And it kind of goes back for me as well. I think with Asian food, people often say, oh, it's only genuine if it's like a hole in a wall restaurant. It's not, it doesn't have to be like that. Yeah. If anyone has ever been to a a, a banquet, an Asian banquet, you know, a Chinese banquet hall, that is like elegance at the top level. That yeah. does not come inexpensively. And so people need to understand that, you know, it's like we need to, to value and reward establishments like that yeah. by paying for it and also supporting them verbally. You know, we're willing to go to all of these fancy Western restaurants and we proudly, you know, talk about it, but we should do the same thing with Asian restaurants. Instead, it's like, God, you know, they really gave me a lot of food. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it's really, is that how you want to frame things? So yeah. I'm always out there trying to, to share with people, like, we can, uh, we can uplift our own communities. If we do it ourselves, we can't, you know, and we have to start from the inside yep um so i'm gonna wrap up on um this talk now but just before we finish just one last question for you what has been your favorite fur from you know when you first ate fur when you were five years old till now oh gosh um 
It really varies so much, Stephen. That's a, that's a question no one has asked me. Um, and I have my, my memories are oftentimes in context yeah. of like, you know, my mother's file has always been really good, yeah. but now I make file for her. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I bring it to her. It's all frozen and everything. And yeah. the highest compliment from her is that I defrosted your broth and the meats and the whole pho kit that you made for me. And it tastes so good. Wow. <laughs> so, um, I am honored to be able to make for my mother who's 88 years old um and it depends on the experience like in um hanoi they i went to a chicken pho shop where the woman used every single part of the chicken i ate things i didn't know i could eat like uh, the coxcomb and i think the esophagus um yeah and there are all these other parts i mean because she used every single part and her broth was so good and it reminded me of the faux broth that i grew up with which is more of a tonic and so i um so that was an experience that that i um think about a lot yeah and i think about her as a chef and a cook i like have a memory of what she looks like she's kind of rock and (laughs) rolly um and so you know those are all like the kinds of things that 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 yeah. give us taste memories. Yeah, I agree. And I think going on to that, yeah, it's not just the food, it's you know what you remember of it. But yeah, so that will wrap up the discussion and the episode for today. I would like to say personally thank you so much for coming on to my show, Andrea. Oh, you're very welcome, Stephen. I'm just always delighted to talk to to folks about one of my favorite food groups. <laughs> and it's one of my favorite too. And You've given me and given us a lot of insight and into fur, its history, and how we can better appreciate the dish and food in general. So thank you so much. Excellent. Thank you so much. That wraps up today's episode with Andrea on the history of fur. A reminder for everyone to subscribe to my podcast and follow me on Instagram. My Instagram is at Bamboo History Podcast. I encourage everyone to reach out to me with feedback, topic suggestions, and general comments. You can DM me on Instagram or email me. Details will be in the description box below. Okay, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the rest of your day or evening, and I'll see you all next time on the Bamboo History Podcast. Bye for now.